Today is part 12. Part 12 of our journey through the book of Amos. Next week we will bring this story to a conclusion. But before we do, and before we pick up today in chapter 9, verse 1, just a, a quick, ever so quick, uh, brief uh, introductory remarks. In case you've missed a few weeks or you're here and you haven't heard any of the, the Amos messages up to this point, the story of Amos, if, if I boil it down, real nuts and bolts, is the story of God who is the God of the oppressed. So if, if you're taking notes, you're like, if I can just figure out Amos in like a sentence or two, that's it, okay? So Amos is the story of God who is the God of the oppressed. And that should be encouraging to us, especially in the midst of such oppression and hostility and just cruelness in this world to know that that's not going unnoticed. I think it should also serve, I think, to help make us more accountable especially in our interactions with other people. So God, in 760 BC, he, he calls this guy Amos from the southern kingdom, from, from Judah. He lives outside of Jerusalem in a town called Tekoa. He's a businessman. He's a breeder of sheep. He has a side business, apparently, dealing, tending to sycamore trees and, and their figs. And he calls him approximately 760 BC to travel to the northern kingdom to preach a series of messages to preach a series of messages where he's going to indict the people. Because as I said, the story of Amos is the story of God, who is the God of the oppressed. The thing you need to understand is, the people who are doing the oppressing are the Israelites against other Israelites. It's, it's God's covenant people who are mistreating each other. And so that's really the framework for our story today as we begin in chapter 9, verse one, this is what he says. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Saw the Lord standing beside the altar. I don't want us to miss anything here. This is like the fifth vision that Amos has had. He had one back in chapter eight, three in chapter seven. So here's the vision. I saw the Lord and he's standing beside the altar. Now he doesn't specify where the altar is. Maybe it was in Bethel. That was really the, the chief worship site there in the northern kingdom. Or, or it could be simply symbolic. But he sees him standing beside the altar. And, and standing in the original language, it would have conveyed the idea of one who was in authority. And so there's God in authority, in charge, next to the altar. Now, the people, upon hearing this, they would have probably assumed that this was a good thing, that God was standing there to high-five them, to pat them on the backs, to accept their offerings, to give his approval to the people. Oh, how they're about to be shocked. Because that is not what is about to happen. This is what he says. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. And he said, he, he gives a command here. He says, strike the capitals 
Until the thresholds, the the very foundations begin to shake. And so there's an earthquake occurring and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And so we have this picture of this debris and this earthquake and and the capitals or translated in other translations, the tops of the pillars of the altar. And they're all falling down and the people are being crushed. They're shocked. This is not what they would have expected Amos to say. Amos has the vision. I see the Lord standing next to the altar. and, And they're probably thinking... He's there to high-five me because I'm awesome. And that's not the case at all. And yet, so many people today, they have this dysfunctional theological view. It seems about every person I get an opportunity to share the gospel with or witness to, when I'm asking questions and talking to them, they usually tell me, oh, well, I think I'd, I'd go to heaven. And I say, why? Well, because I'm a good person. And... God wouldn't send me to hell. I mean, yeah, I do a couple bad things, but I'm, I'm a good person. And, and that's just very human nature, whether it's 2017 or whether it's 760 BC here in the northern kingdom of Israel, right? We, we have sometimes, what is it? Pride, that's what it's called. This idea that we're better than we actually are. And that's the people. They, they think them and the Lord are, are tight, right? Wow, they must have been shocked to hear this. I have this vision, I see the Lord standing next to the altar, and just when they think that he's going to give his approval, he gives the order to strike the capitals, and all these debris and rocks come down and crushing upon the people. And apparently, some of the people, maybe they weren't there, or they avoided the, the rocks coming down upon them, and so now they think that they're, they've, they're safe, right? They, they dodge one bullet, so they're okay. Only to hear Amos go on to say this, Chapter 9, verse 1, and those who are left, so they're left. They weren't under the initial earthquake, the debris falling in on them. Of those who are left, of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. You're going to see here, not just here, but in the, in the next verses, and I just, I'll tell you, so you can be looking for it, you're gonna see a very Jonah-like theme emerge, in which Amos is about to introduce five conditional sentences. He's gonna say, if you do this, he'll get you. If you do this, he'll get you. And you'll see this emerge here, as Amos emphasizes this complete devastation of the people, that the survivors who think that, well, they dodged a bullet, they're, they're safe, they're not. And I think you'll see, I think application, be thinking about this. The application, I think, oftentimes is we misconstrue God's grace. Well, you know, I keep doing this thing, which I shouldn't be doing, right? Whether I'm, I'm, I'm messing around with my girlfriend and, well, hey, nothing's happened yet, so I guess I'm off the hook or, or whatever else. I, I can't use cheating or lying or gossiping. And sometimes we, we misinterpret God's grace and Him being slow to anger and His patience with us and thinking, oh, we're, we're, we just dodged another bullet. We got away. Much like the people here. They, they think they've escaped, but Amos has something to say to them. Verse 2, if, here's the first conditional clause, right? If they dig into Sha'ol, from there shall my hand take them, Sha'ol. It's a, it's a reference to the grave, not hell, the grave. So both the righteous and the wicked 
When they die, this is pre-resurrection of Jesus Christ, they go to Sheol. And, and apparently in Sheol there were two like different compartments, maybe this separating with a chasm between the two. But that's where you go when you die. Righteous people, wicked people, Old Testament people, they go to Sheol. Now, we could talk more about Sheol, and you can bring up questions if you have in small group. But the point here is not to preach an hour-long sermon about Sheol and the nature of it, but to showcase that even if you dig down into the depths of Sheol, he's going to get you. Then he continues and he says, If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Verse 3, third conditional. If they hide themselves on top of Carmel, the, the mountain, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Or for Jonah, a fish swallowing him. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, There I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And so we see this very Jonah-like theme. Like, you can't run from him. You can't hide from him. Like, you don't want to play hide-and-go-seek with God. It's just not going to go well for you. He's going to get you. He's going to find you. There's nowhere you can go. Not... Any place. It's, it's very reminiscent of Psalms 139. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. This is, this is what Amos wants his audience to understand. He doesn't want them to miss this. Like every possible escape route has been cut off. They're all blocked off. There's nowhere that they can go. There's nowhere they can hide. There's nowhere that they can run. And yet, they keep doing this. They keep trying to run from him. They keep ignoring him. Why? Like, that's foolish. This is God. Okay, it's not like your little brother. Like, this is God. Like, he's going to find you. And yet, they keep running. They keep ignoring him. And Amos has already given them instructions. In fact, back in chapter 5, and I'll just read this verse, 5.14, he says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. He he already warned them back in chapter 5. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Back in chapter 5, previous sermon, seek good. Don't seek evil so that you may live, so that God may actually be with you as you've said. You you said like you and God are tight. If you actually want that to be true or to mean anything, then you need to obey God. You need to actually seek good, not evil. Because they've been seeking evil. They're, They're mistreating each other. And yet, here it is again, they still have refused to obey God. They don't want to. They want to do their own thing. So they're going to keep running from Him. They're going to keep running from him. They're going to keep ignoring him. Why? Why? Well, because they want to do their own thing. There's something else that they love. And so, they can expect 
God's gaze to be upon them, as he says at the conclusion of verse 4, for evil and not for good. I'm talking to a guy a few weeks ago who walked out on his wife like, buddy, bad mistake. Shouldn't have done that. Whatever. You're in rebellion against the king right now. You don't want to be in rebellion against the king. Right? Like, especially after reading this, like, bad idea. You don't want that. Yeah, well, whatever. I'll, I'll ask for, you know, I'll ask for forgiveness. I'll clear, clear things up with God after the divorce. Buddy, that's dangerous. Don't do that. And, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I just imagine, I don't know if like Amos felt this way as I'm talking to this guy and he's calling the people like, do good, don't do evil, that you may live. You're in rebellion against the king. You keep running from him. You keep ignoring him. Like, what are you doing? I will be okay. What do you mean you'll be okay? Yeah, I'll just, I'll work things out with God later on. Well, the problem is by the time later on rolls around, you may not have that opportunity. And so, he says, I'm going to set my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. You know, whatever, I don't care. Just imagine that their attitude, much like the guy I was talking to. Whatever. Whatever? Like he just said, God's going to set his eyes upon you for evil and not for good. And you're just like shoulder rolling and shrugging it off. So Amos kind of takes a, a pause right here. And in verses 5 and 6, he's going to introduce this hymn of praise. You call it a doxology. And it's going to serve to do one of two things. It's going to obviously acknowledge God's power, God's control, God's sheer awesomeness. And in doing that, serve to illuminate and magnify the previous statement in saying his eyes are going to be set against you for evil and not for good. It's not just something you just shoulder shrug off, dude, bro. So this is what he says, verse 5. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts. And all who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. The Lord is his name. All he does just comes, he just touches the earth, and it melts. It melts, it shakes, it trembles in the original languages. All he has to do is touch the earth. Just just imagine, I'm just touching that. And like a 9.8 magnitude earthquake occurring, and there's such devastation as a result, the people are mourning. And you're just like shoulder shrugging the fact that he's saying he's turning his eyes against you for evil and not for good. All he has to do is just touch the earth and it melts, it trembles, it shakes, it quakes before him. Who is this? The Lord is his name. The Lord is his name. He takes rivers like the Nile and he 
can bring them and cause the, the waters to, to overflow their banks and, and cause damage, cause destruction. And in a word, he can cause them to and call them to rescind back into their tributaries. The Lord is his name. He is sovereign. He is in control from the heavens to the earth. Here's this picture of the palace that God has. It stretches into the heavens and down to its foundations upon the earth. The Lord is His name. He, he determines whether it's going to rain in one area today and maybe drought in another. He controls the waters. If He wants it to rain here in Lynchburg, but not in Bedford, He can do that. The Lord is His name. The Lord is His name. So check yourselves. You don't want to be running from Him. You don't want to be ignoring Him. You don't want to get to the point where He's turning His gaze against you for evil and not for good. That's not just a little shoulder shrug type of mentality that we need to have. And yet, for these people... For the dude who just checked it on his wife and was like, eh, screw that. I mean, just this ugly hardness of his heart. For that, okay, that's a problem. And so this is what he says. Verse 7. Are you not like the Cushites to me, the people of Israel, declares the Lord? You know, like the Cushites. Did I not bring Israel up? Did I bring Israel up? Bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? And the Philistines from Kaftor and the, the Syrians, a reference here, the Syrians, the, the Arameans, the king of Damascus, you may have remembered them from the big introductions we talked about from Kerr. So, so what's he saying here? He says, you're like these, these Cushites. Cush was a territory of Ethiopia and, and Nubia. In the Old Testament times, they were a tribe that inhabited uh, really the, the southern part of the Nile River past Egypt. They were one of the, the farthest nations removed from Israel. And then you think about what he's saying. He says, you're like the Cushites to me. Imagine Israel saying, the Cushites? Oh yeah, they're, man, they're really far away. They're, they're like the farthest removed nation. And God says, yep, that's my point. We're not like this. Everything's not good. You're, you're so far removed from me, just as the Kushites are to you, so you are to me. I mean, think, uh, this is just shocking them. Imagine, like, if you're married or you have a significant other and saying, hey, have I told you how much you remind me, like, of your just, your really mean ex-significant other? Like, don't recommend doing that. The people would have been shocked. What do you mean we're like the Cushites? you got to be kidding me. They're pagans. Yep. You remind me of them. By coming in saying, hey, you guys, you, you remind me of the Mormons. I mean, they're a little bit more, put a bigger emphasis on evangelism and outreach, but yeah, you're basically like them. And you're like, wait, what? They're pagans. They worship a different God. Yep. And then he references this. I brought you guys out of Egypt. You know the story. They would have known the story. 400 years. 
the Exodus, Moses brought them out, gave them land flowing with milk and honey, established them. And, and he established other nations. He referenced the Syrians. He references the Philistines where he pulled up these other nations and established them in, in areas. And we know back from chapter 1, those other nations, they're in trouble. Those other nations haven't been doing good either. It's not the focal point of the story, but he indicts them back in chapter 1. And he says, yeah, they've been oppressing people. They've been, ick, they've been wicked. They've been evil. And so I'm actually going to remove them and send them back to the trash heap they came from. So that's the reference here. It's very much connected back to chapter 1. And, and, and we remember that early on, the, the first couple sermons in Amos, no doubt the people would have been standing by and been like, yeah, God, yeah, you send them back to the trash heap where they came from. And no doubt Amos would have looked over and been like, I don't know why you're clapping. Because as soon as I'm done talking and indicting these people, I have a message from God for you. Just as God brought you up out of Israel and established you so he can remove you. And yet for the people, they're thinking, no way. We've got this elect status. We're the covenant people of God. Like, I asked Jesus to come into my heart 18 times every year at summer camp. I'm good to go. I'm fine. Like, I've got this special covenant relationship with him. But that doesn't absolve you from responsibility. It doesn't. Israel's probably having their minds blown right now. Because they think they're good to go as far as they're concerned. Even in the opening sequence of the story, they see the vision that Amos has. He sees God standing next to the altar, and they're like, yeah, he's there to high-five us. And he's like, no, he's not. Like, things aren't good with you and God, despite what you think. Despite what you think. And so, he says this in verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. That's important. That reference to the single sinful kingdom. If you're taking notes. The eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Verse 8 introduces the idea that while God's judgment is total, God's judgment is also limited in the fact that the house of Jacob would not suffer this destruction. The sinful kingdom, therefore, apparently is not identical to the house of Jacob in this instance. They're not identical, the house of Jacob and the sinful kingdom. The implication from the text, the sinful kingdom is the northern kingdom, is Israel. They would cease to be a nation. This is 760 BC. We know from history by 722, the Assyrians come and that's the end of the story. In 722 B.C. And yet, and yet, the people who are the descendants of Jacob, they they would survive. They'd go into exile in 586, and they'd spend many decades in captivity, but then God would bring them back again. But this sinful kingdom, this northern kingdom, they're done. No more chances. No more chances. They're done. Verse 9, for behold, for behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebbles fall to the earth. And so here's what's happening. He's got this sieve, right? This like strainer, if it helps you. And so he's got the wheat in it. And what it's doing is it's allowing 
the good pieces of the wheat to fall to the ground. So he's, he's shaking it, right? And the good pieces of the wheat are falling down, but it's trapping the stalks. It's trapping like the loose gravel and the rocks, the, the, the pebbles. He says, I'm shaking Israel and, and not a single piece, not a single pebble is going to fall through. Not a single person is going to get away with Jack. That's not happening. They're all going to be accountable before me. That's, that's, I think that's the flip side, right? I kept saying this, this story of Amos is a story of God who is the God of the oppressed. And that's good news, right? Because we know that, that God's noticing this type of oppression in the world, in the local church. People aren't getting away with things. And it also, on the flip side, should make us think twice when we think about mistreating people in any form or fashion. Knowing that we're going to be held accountable. And so, he says, not a pebble shall fall to the earth. So will that be Israel. And we come to verse 10. And this is what he has to say. All the sinners of my people, of my people, shall die by the sword. All the sinners of my people. So this reference here, all the sinners of my people, there's an implication that not all of Israel were necessarily in the same camp. The the camp of being the sinful kingdom back in verse 8. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. They're not going to get away with anything. And the purpose of his judgment here is just to remove them. To remove who? To remove them. Who's them? Well, them who are saying, disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. Disaster is not going to overtake us or meet us. It's like, wait. Pretty sure. I might have zoned out while Joe was talking, but I'm pretty sure that's not what Amos said. And that's true. That's not what Amos said. They're completely ignoring what Amos said. And as people do oftentimes, when they hear something they don't like, not only do they ignore it, but they contradict it. It goes all all the way back to the garden, right? Did God really say that you couldn't eat of the tree? I don't know about that. Really? Amos has been very clear up to this point. And remember, this this sermon, this book, Amos, by all indications, it was probably preached over several weeks or even months. Did Amos really say, Amos didn't say that? Disaster's not going to overtake us. The whole beginning sequence is, you can't run from God. You can't hide from God. Any efforts are futile, so why do it? It's absurd. It's foolish. Why, why would you do that? He's God. The Lord is his name. Why, why would you do that? And so they continue to run from God. They continue to ignore God because they want to do their own thing. They want to do their own thing. These are the same people who, back in chapter 2, verse 12, were rejecting God. Back to chapter 2, verse 12, you remember Amos indicts the people and he says, God gave you people to help you in your, in your, in your spiritual walks in case you, you know, you were on the path of God and if you got Pulled away, he gave you people to speak truth into your life. 
To say, listen, you know, I, I see you're struggling maybe in this area with this sin, with, with pride or with purity or, or with gossip or whatever. And, you know, there was a time in my life I struggled with that. And, and, and you know, what they're saying, they're saying, hey, shut up. Shut your mouth. I don't want to hear it. And then chapter 7 comes and Amaziah, who just blows my mind, even thinking about this from three weeks ago. Amaziah, the high priest there in the northern kingdom, is telling Amos the same thing. Like, shut your mouth. Amos, you want to... You Come and tell us how messed up we are, that's fine. But you can't. If you want to keep talking, you need to go back to the southern kingdom, you need to go back to Judah, because we don't want to hear what you have to say. You're not welcome here, Amos. And here, once again, another example of them running from God, rebelling against God, ignoring God. Like the story I I referenced a couple weeks ago. I'm talking to this guy who's married and has a girlfriend, and he's telling me, here's the thing. But my girlfriend, like I, he said, in any other circumstance, like I get what you're saying, right, Joe? But it's different because she's helping me in my walk with God. So I told him exactly what you'd expect me to say. And he's like, no, that's not adultery because, well, when I first met my wife, that, like, she was with another guy, and so, if anything, that adultery cancels that adultery out. And I'm thinking, wait, what? So then I proceeded to tell him exactly what you'd expect me to tell him. And it just so reminded me of these people, right? They are ignoring what God says. And then they just start to contradict and come up with these absurd thinking and, and rationale. Like the guy who comes and tells me, well, it's okay that me and my girlfriend are messing around because I love her. No, you don't. It, it's, it's okay because, you know, we're going to get married. And we're basically married in our hearts. So that's okay. No, it's not. Like, And so they're ignoring Amos. And, and by default, they're ignoring God. And then they're contradicting, they're contradicting what Amos is saying. Amos is saying, you can't escape his presence. You can't just keep running from him. Like, he's going to get you. Like, stop. It's just, just dumb. And, and they, they keep ignoring. And so a lot of you, you know, you're like, yeah, that's wrong. That's wrong, right? That's, that's, well, I see that Amos is right. The people are wrong. And oftentimes I think, when I think about application, I've been staring at verse 10 all day long. I think about not just the active ways that we ignore God, but I started thinking, well, what about like the passive ways that we ignore God as well? Because I think most of us would be like, okay, it's probably wrong to have a wife and a girlfriend, right? I mean, that's, I mean, kind of a no-brainer. I can get, I can get non-Christian moralists to agree with me at that point. So, so what other ways do we run from God? What other ways do we ignore God? That's what I've been thinking about today. What, how else do we do this? And I, and I honestly think it happens in many cases very subtly. Very, very subtly. I don't think you just happen to have a, a wife and a girlfriend overnight. I, I think it's a very subtle kind of departure from like the right-hand lane or whatever onto the off-ramp. And, and for me, I started thinking about, well, what are ways in my life that I, I've tried running from his presence or, or ignoring him? And like I said, I think we see a lot of examples of just active ways, but what are passive? So, I started thinking about just spending time with the Lord. Just spending time with the Lord. And the ways in my own life in which I ignore Him. 
I, I wouldn't think, say that I affirm that, I, that I'm so extreme as these people, but I think it starts very gradually and, and just passive ways. So, for example, tomorrow, if I don't spend time with the Lord tomorrow, if I don't spend time with the Lord tomorrow, see, most people would say, well, so I'd say, what's up with that? And you'd say, oh, well, I'm, I'm sure you were busy, right? I'm sure you were busy, which is interesting because I hear that a lot, and I never know what busy means. Like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't spend time with them. We, no one ever says, hey, how are you doing spiritually? Man, I ignored God all week long. I've never, ever heard someone say that, but I started thinking, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm, I'm ignoring God. We don't like saying that because it ruffles feathers and it makes us seem like bad. And we're not bad. We love the Lord. I get that. So we, we come up with like little things and we say, well, I'm busy. So I didn't have time to. And I'm thinking, like, I'm busy, didn't have time to. I, I couldn't. I wasn't able to. And I'm thinking, that's interesting because that's an interesting sentence. I'm busy. So I didn't have time to. I, I wasn't able to. As if busyness is like an ISIS terrorist who binds our hands behind our backs and puts a blindfold over our eyes and literally doesn't let us Spend time with the Lord. Busyness is a very dangerous person. Right? I'm busy. I always like wonder, what does that even mean? Like, a six-year-old can be busy. Could be. And so I started thinking, if I don't spend time with the Lord tomorrow, I'm ignoring God. You say, well, you're busy. No, busyness is a temptation that I might give into. If I don't spend time with God tomorrow, if I don't spend time with the Lord tomorrow, at the end of the day, it's because I didn't want to. I use myself as an example, so maybe you don't feel like I, I'm, I'm, I'm rebuking you, but for myself, if I don't spend time with God tomorrow, right, and I'm reading through Acts, and I love the story of Acts, and Pastor Dan and I are big fans of Acts, but if I don't spend time with the Lord tomorrow, Excuses aside, it's because I just, I didn't want to. People say, oh, but, you know, I, I, I just, I couldn't. I'm like, really? You couldn't? Like, like you're unconscious in the hospital? You couldn't. I wasn't able to. I hear this all the time. I'm thinking, am I really not able to? Well, I had to sleep. I was overly tired. I'm thinking, who said you had to stay up for eight hours, like, start reading your Bible? Like, I'm just thinking, why don't you set your alarm 15 minutes early so that you don't ignore God? I'll start using that language. We don't ignore God. Just felt really convicted about this. Why not? Because I don't want to. Why? Because there was something else I preferred in that moment. Whether it was 15 minutes more of sleep, whether it was finishing watching the episode of whatever on Netflix, or anything else. In that moment, I chose, I preferred something over the Lord than the Lord himself. I'm not saying that in that moment, I'm, I'm like these people and God's going to turn his eyes against me for evil, not for good. But I think these are important examples of passive ways in which we ignore God. And, and I don't think we should overlook it anymore. And, and like I said, I, I hear it all the time. I was so busy, so I, I couldn't. As if busyness is a terrorist tying us up and binding our arms so we can't, you know, I like to, you know, like to read the Bible, spend time with the Lord, but I, I couldn't. 
The people in this story are running from God, rebelling against God. They're ignoring God. And I think that in many of these cases, it starts very small, very passively at first, and then it's full-blown to the point where God's calling this businessman from Tekoa to travel to the northern kingdom to preach this message against his people. You think, how could it have come to that? This is God's covenant people. I think it starts very small. And I think we need to be aware of it so that we can battle against it. That we can battle against those moments when, quite frankly, maybe we don't desire God so much. Why? Why Why would these people continue to rebel, continue to ignore God, especially after Amos has made it so clear, you can't escape him. You, you, can't, you can't outrun him. You can't outhide him like he's going to get you. And I think one of the best antidotes to this, to fighting this, is allowing ourselves to just pause and be in awe of the king. To, to just, because sometimes we'll come across, we'll read verse 5 and 6 or, or any other just beautiful parts of scripture, and we'll just run through it so quickly. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, slow down, slow down. Let us just be captivated by the picture that Amos is painting to be in awe of the great king, to marvel at his majesty. I mean, he's the one who all he does is he touches the earth and it melts. 9.8 magnitude earthquake, it just trembles and shakes. He's the one who, he keeps the rivers in their tributaries or he has them flood, or he brings them back. He's the one who makes it rain or withholds the rain. The Lord is his name. The Lord is his name. Oh, that we might say, behold our God, and just allow ourselves to be just Wowed to be captivated by the glory, by the grandeur, by the greatness of him. The Lord is his name. The Lord is his name. God, we love you. You are good. You are great. I thank you that you are Lord over heaven and earth. And I pray that you would protect us, God from inching closer and closer toward the circumstances that these people find themselves in. I pray that we wouldn't, we wouldn't run from you. That's just silly. I pray that we wouldn't ignore you, God. That we desire to want to be in your presence. That, that you give us a, a love for you, a love for others, a love for your word. I need your help. We need your help, Lord. Lord, I don't want to get to the point where when you look at us, you say you're just like the Cushites to me. You're just like the Mormons to me. Like, I don't, I don't want to ever even get like, like two steps on that path. So help us to treasure you, to enjoy you, to find our satisfaction in you, to behold you. For you are great and do wondrous things, as the psalmist declares, you are Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.